Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. And we'll be in verses 1 through 11 this morning. But before we are, let's pray. Father God, the, the opportunity is always there, no matter what time of day or where we're at. But right now, here this morning, there's a unique opportunity as you're gathered people to come to the altar to find forgiveness to confess our sins, knowing that you who are faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness in the name of Jesus. This text has a bold and at times difficult message, but it is shot through with your kindness and your restraint and your patience. Help us to see that this morning and to act in response to your actions toward us that we might be saved. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So we don't have a Christmas series per se here at Grace Church this year, but we we did kind of Christmas up Romans (laughs) for you. And so we'll do everything that we can to make it merry while honoring the text. Human beings are intriguing and complex beings. Do you find that to be true? We have this strange capacity and ability to hold other people to a standard that we ourselves do not desire to be held to if it conflicts with something that we really want to have or do. So in essence, we will say to someone who would confront us in this, maybe you've heard this as a child from your parents, do as I say, not as I do. Politicians do this with their constituents, hence the story of Nancy Pelosi feeling justified in going to her stylist while there was a lockdown on all of her constituents from going to their barbers. Or the climate change champion jet-setting around the world on a private jet, burning up fuel like it was water. We call it hypocrisy, and we hate it when we see it in others or experience it from others. In a closely related behavior, human beings also have a strange way of trying to maintain our own sense and, of goodness and acceptance of ourselves, kind of our ability to live with ourselves, that can often move towards a moral superiority inside ourselves, seeing so easily in others their sins and imperfections and wrongdoing while being blind to those very things inside of us. Can I get a witness? We can expend a tremendous amount of energy in being harsh towards others and spending the same amount of energy in being lenient and understanding with ourselves. I think it might be kind of a defense mechanism inherent in humans in an attempt to protect ourselves from judgment or recrimination. Or so we think. 
until we're directly and effectively called out. There was a king thousands of years ago who ruled over a nation called Israel. And in the times when kings would go out to battle, this king named David stayed home while his army went out to fight. Now you might be thinking that this didn't seem wise and you would be right. Idle hands are the devil's playground. And this king and his warden got himself into a great deal of trouble. To tell the story short, he observed a woman bathing naked on a rooftop. He abused his power and authority as king to sexually abuse her, which resulted in a pregnancy. And this woman just happened to be the wife of one of his mighty men, a group of warriors who were very close and loyal to the king. And if you can believe it, To cover it all up, he had her husband killed, which is a whole other sordid story, all while pretending to be a righteous king over his people. And Yahweh knew. And Yahweh was watching all of it. And Yahweh sent his prophet, Nathan, to this king to tell the king a story. There were two men in the same city, one rich and the other poor. O king. The poor man had nothing but one little female lamb, which he had bought and raised. It grew up with him and his children as a member of his family. It ate off of his plate, drank from his cup, slept on his bed. It was like a daughter to him. One day, a traveler dropped in on the rich man. He was too stingy to take an animal from his own herds or flocks to make a meal for his visitor. So king, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared a meal to set before his guests. The king exploded in anger. As surely as God lives, David said to Nathan, that man ought to be lynched. He must repay four times over for the lamb that he stole and for his crime and for his stinginess. To which Nathan said, you are the man. It's you, David. And here's what Yahweh God has to say to you. I made you king. I made you A son, I gave you an inheritance and covenant promises. I gave you a nation and many wives and I would have gladly given you so much more. But you have treated me with contempt. You have treated my words and my promises and my covenant with contempt and you have done great evil. You took Uriah's wife and you had him killed. And so now I will repay you according to your works. And the sword will not depart from your family. Do you see? The king had a strange capacity to hold another to a standard that he desired to protect himself from. He spent great energy to judge another when he saw wickedness out there while expending the same amount of energy to extend leniency and understanding when he knew of wickedness inside of him. As a small child, Paul had heard this story countless times. It was deeply embedded in his consciousness as a recovering, self-righteous moralizer. And I wonder if it was there in the background as he was writing Romans. 
do you remember chapter 1, verses 18 and following? Maybe you've been reading through Romans like I've been encouraging you to do. Paul had just elaborated, right, on the great wickedness out there as he wrote to a Roman church filled with Jewish and Gentile believers. Verse 18, God's wrath is revealed from the heavenly realm against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people, of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And as a result, people are without excuse. God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, verse 24. God delivered them over to disgraceful passions, verse 26. God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness. I mean, let me list 20 different kinds of unrighteousness. Goodness, aren't those people awful? To which so often we in the church If we are honest, we see people that we don't like. We don't like how they act, how they behave, what they believe. And we're right here seemingly with Paul when he describes the world outside our door or sometimes maybe we even direct it at the people who venture through our doors and into our homes and we say, or at least we think to ourselves, looking down our noses, yes, how awful they all are. Look at them. They deserve God's wrath. They deserve to be punished. And do you know what Paul does next? I'll tell you what he does next. And it's very, listen, it is very pastoral what Paul does next. It's really brave, actually, and takes a great deal of courage. And it's driven, I think it's driven by a tremendous pastoral heart and a great amount of compassion and love because Paul sees a great danger in the capacity of humans to be self-righteous and hypocritical. He sees a great danger in our ability to be lenient with ourselves even as we're hard on other people. And there is a great danger for, in this for us, for us, And there's a great danger in this for our evangelism. Hypocrisy is a killer of so much. (laughs) You know, sometimes when someone loves you, when they love you, when they're actively loving you, it doesn't feel like they're loving you. But it is. Because love without truth can be dangerous. And so Paul confronts the Romans and us in our potential comfort with our sins. He makes a brilliant move as he does this, moving from the end of chapter one into chapter two, verse one. He goes from speaking to the collective church, and it's hard to see. You can't see it unless you're able to read Greek, and most of us can't, so let me tell you what he does. He's speaking in the plural form in the language all throughout chapter one. He's speaking to a collective group of people. And then in the very beginning of chapter two, he moves that to what's called the masculine singular vocative. It's this expression, it's a declaration, Declaration, but he's doing it to a single person. And so in this way, I think what Paul is doing is creating kind of a stand-in person that we can all relate to. A stand-in person who is guilty of self-righteous hypocrisy. A judgmental moralizer. And through this rhetorical device, his hearers are able to identify with this person and then therefore be instructed by Paul. It was a common rhetorical device in his time and all of his listeners would have been very familiar with it. 
Look at how he begins in verse one. Therefore, now, depending on your translation, most translations will say something like every one of you. But actually, it's an idiomatic phrase, which means it's just like what Nathan said. He says, therefore, you, sir, right? Because kind of what he did was he got us all comfortable in chapter one, at the end of chapter one there. He's kind of put his, ar- his arm around our shoulders and is like, well, look at them. Look at all these unrighteous people out here. And then all of a sudden he's like, and you, sir, therefore, the one who judges, you are the man. You are also without excuse. And the way that Paul constructs this, well, let's just say it was a derogatory term that underscores this man's, this stand-in, his ignorance and insolence before divine justice, to which this man would have naturally responded, hey, now, wait a minute. Like, where do you get off accusing me? How does it follow from everything that you just said that I also am without excuse? The therefore, right? That therefore perplexed me for two days this week. What it, all of this, Romans 1, 18 to 32, therefore you are without excuse. What? what? I, I'm not them. And it's then that Paul provides his evidence. Read on. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself right along with them because you, the judge, do the same things. In other words, Paul had just argued in Romans 1.32, if you look back up and read verse 32, that there are people who know that they are doing wrong and they approve of others who do wrong things, right? So, I mean, we can say, well, at least you're consistent. But here in chapter 2, we have people who Paul now says, he, you know you are doing wrong and condemn others who do wrong things. You're not approving it. You're condemning them, but you're not being consistent. You're being a hypocrite because you do the same things. Now, again, remember how I told you last week that Paul's argument here is very complex and tightly constructed? So you gotta, you gotta pay attention and follow me here because and I wanna do, before we go another step in Paul's warning an argument before we take that into our own thinking, I want to make sure that you're hearing Paul correctly because Paul is not saying here that it is wrong to have high standards for humanity. He's not saying that. He's not saying that there shouldn't be a rebuke and a correction for those not living in the way that God has designed for ultimate human flourishing. And he is certainly not calling on us to suspend our critical faculties or to renounce all criticism and rebuke of others as illegitimate. He's not doing that. Paul does not object to people propagating or holding high moral standards. But what he does object to, and in the strongest possible terms, is doing that while failing to practice what you preach. What he objects to is the hypocrisy of denouncing faults while secretly practicing them yourself. That's what he's got a problem with. In other words, Paul isn't against morals. He's against moralizing. And there's a difference. And he represents God in this feeling. Verse two. Now we know that God's judgment on those who do such things Judge, condemn other people while you're doing the same thing. We know that that judgment is based on truth. It's based on truth. 
What's Paul saying? While others may not see our behavior or hear even our inner voice, right? So, because you think like, if I just say it inside my head, you know, that's okay. God sees and God knows. There is no hiding from God, never, not ever. And we need to hear this. I needed to hear this this week because don't we so quickly forget (laughs) that he knows and that he sees? I mean, it's kind of cliche at this point in pastors and sermons, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to say the cliche. I mean, how many of us would want even one day of everything that we have said, done, or thought projected on these screens behind me? Or, or maybe even, you know, that there was like one of those really talented film editors that would like edit it up edit it all down like just to the juicy bits. How many of us would want that? I wouldn't. And we, we fool ourselves into thinking, isn't that what, like, have you ever just sinned and been like, oh man, he, was, he watched all of that. He heard all of that. The way that I just talked to Susan, the way that I just talked to Nehemiah, he just, he saw all of that. It's always the way it is with God. And the day is coming when God will judge what we have kept secret. Chapter 2, verse 16, if you read ahead. And if he can judge what we have kept secret, that means he knows all of our secrets. So Paul can say to our rhetorical stand in verse 3, you, sir, you are the man. And do you think, I mean, stop for a second, really consider this, do the calculations, reckon this out. Do you think that a person judging those who do such things yet do the same, that that person is going to escape God's judgment? I mean, do you think that? See, Paul is aware of our strange capability to think that we can escape God's judgment by such an illogical calculation as condemning unrighteousness while practicing it ourselves. And so he utters this rhetorical question. Do you know what we do with rhetorical questions? What do you do with a rhetorical question? You tr- it's just, it's, it's not expecting an answer, right? It's just, it's actually a statement. So every time you see a rhetorical question, just turn it into a declarative sentence. So what Paul is saying here is, if you do this, you will not escape Paul's, God's judgment. And he follows it up quickly with another rhetorical question. Or do you, do you despise the riches of his kindness and restraint and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? And there it is. There's my, my little Advent Christmas section of a wrath-filled text on Christmas. It's the bright shaft of God's amazing grace. It's, it's, there's hope here. Do you see it? He is holding out God's hope and grace to all of us who are hypocrites. Because we all are. One time or another, we've been a hypocrite. And there's so much going on here that, that what I need to do is translate this a bit more literally from Paul's original language. And at the same time, I'm going to turn the rhetorical question into a declarative statement. Because, and the reason I'm doing this is because there's something really important that Paul is doing. There's another thing that you can do with the Greek language. And you can, you can force what would be objects in like an English sentence. You can construct it in a way that those are in the front 
And it, it implies that when an author does that, they want you to see that that's the emphatic thing. And, and if we translated that exactly in English, it would sound all weird because you'd have the direct object before the verb and the subject, and it just wouldn't sound right. But you can see that when you read Paul's original text. So let me, let me translate it for you. Everything that's going on here. Listen. God is so rich to you, oh man and woman. He is so rich in his goodness and kindness. He desires to lavish you with his warm-heartedness and consideration and gentleness and sympathy. He is so rich in his restraint. He is abundant in tolerating those things in you that deserve a swift response, delaying his rights to take action against you. Oh, he is so rich in his patience. He is steadfast in remaining emotionally calm in the face of all of your provocations, doing so without displaying towards you frustration or irritation or annoyance or a scrunched up countenance or aloofness because he is long-suffering. Dear friends, please hear the major chord of hope in Paul's argument because it forms, listen, this is one of those texts that forms the basis of our aspiration here at Grace Church to be a place that creates a gentle environment, a gentle environment where everyone is moving one step closer to Jesus, a gentle environment of the good news and safety and time. Good news for bad people. Right? Because we are justified in Christ and we are saved. But we're still bad sometimes. We're still sinners. And we need wave upon wave of grace and truth according to the Bible. And safety. We need safety. A non-accusing environment. No embarrassing anyone. No condescension with each other. Correction and righteous rebuke. Yes, but no condemnation. Paul will write in Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And if there isn't any condemnation from God, there ought not to be condemnation from each other. Sympathy and understanding instead where sinners can confess and unburden their souls where no one seeking Jesus has anything to fear. Wouldn't it be great to be a place like that? and time. No pressure. Not even self-imposed, self-righteous pressure. No deadlines on growth. Urgency, but not hurry. Why? Maybe you know the end of the sentence because I keep saying it. Because no one changes quickly. (laughs) A lot of space for complicated people to rethink their lives at a deep level. Because God, Paul just told us, is kind and he's forbearing and he's patient. This is glorious that God is patient with me, that he's long-suffering with me, that he doesn't see us as insufferable. You know that old word? Oh, you're just insufferable. In other words, I just can't bear you. He never says that. I grew up thinking that's how God looked at me. 
I grew up thinking he had a two by four behind his back and he was ready for me to screw up and just to take that out and just whack me alongside the head in disappointment in me. And it took me so many years and I'm still detoxifying from that kind of growing up and that kind of moralizing and judgmentalism and condemnation from the people around me to see that God isn't that way. He's not. And I want you to believe that this morning. He's not that way. He's patient. He is on your team. (laughs) Go get him, Russ. She's just cheering you on. You can do it, Bruce. That's who he, he's on your team. He's on the sidelines. Just go, go, go. Supplying his words and his spirit. He's supplying his Holy Spirit to help us along. He is patient towards you. It says, the Apostle Peter, who learned this like the Apostle Peter? Denying Christ, not once, but twice. First getting called out by Jesus and then getting called out by Paul. Did the same thing. Do you realize that? He did the same thing again later in his ministry. And he's the one who can write, God is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. All God lets out a very, very, very long leash for us. Isn't that amazing? You ever see those things where they they tie up the dog and they stick the stake in the ground and it's like, you know, a 20 or a 30 or it's just miles for you. He does that. We might be a a church. I told you that that this book would be about a church humbled together under the grace of God that we would be humbled by that kind of grace, this patience of God, this second, third, and thousandth chance. (laughs) Just gives you thousands of chances. But, there's a but. The space he provides is not an excuse to go on sinning or fooling ourselves or thinking of God as kind of like that doddering old uncle in the corner that's just kind of chuckling at us going astray in our sin. Paul says that God is kind and forbearing and patient, yes and amen, but that we must not look down with contempt. That's what, do you remember hearing that's what David did? You've looked at me with contempt, at my promises with contempt, at my covenant with contempt. We must not look down with contempt on his kindness. We must not disregard his forbearance. We must not consider his patience of little value, Paul says, despising this because the space that he's giving us is to allow us the time to repent. Friend, is, is there a sin that has a hold of you? Is there something for which you have had a high standard for others, but a comfortably low standard for yourself? Is there something that squishes out of you, maybe at this time in the holiday season when you are around others you love and know so well and find so easy to be harsh with? Isn't that just so ironic? Do you know the depression and the despair that comes at Christmas time? because of conflict and sin between family members that are gathering together for Christmas? 
Has this sin been going on for years in you with no perceivable progress because you've maybe kind of just given up on fighting it inside of yourself and you've given yourself instead to complaining about it in others because it's easier to project in others and then attack it? Have you ever seen that in your own behavior? Aren't we just ridiculous as, as humans sometimes? We'll, we'll see that and we'll just, oh, I see it in you. And all of that anger that you have in your own failure, you just project on someone else. And God cares about that kind of hypocrisy and despising of his patience. Man, and I do too. Man, I don't want to be that way anymore. I'm tired of being a hypocrite. I'm with Paul. I, he's being so loving to show this to us and I don't want for you to be that way either because it's really, really dangerous to your soul, family. And I love you as your pastor. This is really dangerous. Hypocrisy is really dangerous. Verse six, because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is going to be revealed and he will repay each one according to his works. And Paul just keeps vividly describing this stand-in for us. If we don't address in us what we are so willing to address in others, he says our hearts get hard and unrepentant. And, and it says in Hebrews chapter 3, 12, if we go on that way, we fall away from the, the living God hardened by sin's deception. And that is terrifying to me. Maybe we're just trying to fool ourselves because maybe we don't see because there's this strange kind of thing that operates in God's grace. Maybe we don't see his judgment in our lives currently. Like we go on sinning and things still seem to be okay. The business is doing well. I'm all right in my job. My relationships with my family are cool, but we just keep going on sinning. We think, well, maybe I'm just kind of, you know, getting away with it. Paul says, no, you're not. <laughs> you're merely storing up. The word here literally for storing up is, is used so often in the literature of, of storing up actually treasure. It has this really positive sense, like I'm storing up all this treasure. Look, I'm a good saver. And Paul uses it in this place negatively and says, you're storing up. Yes, but what you're storing up is wrath. And God, the righteous banker, is going to pay out at the day of judgment, all of that's gonna be revealed. And it's my prayer in this moment right now by the power of the Holy Spirit that we will be saved from our myopic focus on the present. It's just so easy. You know, I'll, I'll change tomorrow. I'll, just, I'll do it tomorrow. And God is giving you the grace in this moment to see clearly to have a long view, to have an eternal view, because listen, now listen closely to this. While our justification is by faith, God's judgment is according to works. And a day of judgment is coming. Do not doubt it. His word is clear. He will repay each one according to his works. 
verse 6. Now that truth might be hard for you to believe. I, I was wrestling with this this week again. When, when you read chapter 2 and you see it, it's going to happen according to works, and if you've been reading ahead in, in Romans like I've asked you to do, maybe you got to chapter 3 verse 28 when Paul is going to say God will justify people apart from the works of the law. So how can Paul here say that he's going to repay people according to their works? Paul, that doesn't seem to make sense to me until I saw it's justification by faith, but judgment by works. You see, this is why I keep pointing out, we have to keep reading and we're gonna have to take this whole argument bit by bit. Don't make too many hard and fast conclusions in chapter two until we see the rest of his argument, right? So we're gonna keep doing that. We'll keep building on this. But right here, I think we see something very important. N.T. Wright says it this way. Sometimes Christians have imagined that Paul's doctrine of justification by faith, as he writes in chapter three and four in particular, means the abolition, the removal of a final judgment according to works. But Paul never says that. His theology is more robust than many traditions have given him credit for. He can look the world in the face and speak of the justice of God, which he does now in verses 6 to 11. God will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life, Okay, so now he's going to give you, he's going to construct this. It's beautiful the way he constructs this argument. It's going to be A, B, B, A structure. Okay, positive, negative, negative, positive. That's what you're about to see. Eternal life to those who, who by persistence in doing good seek glory and honor and immortality, positive, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking, Disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. Another negative, verse 9. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, and then the positive, verse 10, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. Four, just to be clear, there is no favoritism with God. He's not looking at your ethnicity to decide on how he's going to judge you. Now, I want you to notice each of those outcomes, the good outcomes and the bad outcomes, the positives and the negatives, Paul says are what? According to works. See, Paul knows his Bible. He, he knows it really well. And, and this is not his idea. It is God's whom he's quoting in verse 6. That's a quote from the Old Testament, likely Psalm 62, verse 12. And we know, right, as good Bible studiers, I've told you this, when you see an Old Testament quotation in the New Testament, what are we supposed to do? Go back to that Old Testament quotation and we read it in context to understand why did you use that, Paul? Why did you say that? Listen to what it says in Psalm 62, verse one. I am at rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. God alone is my rock and salvation. Rest in God alone, my soul, for my hope comes from him. He alone is my rock and salvation. My salvation and glory depend on God, my strong rock. My refuge is in God. And that sounds like what we believe is all God. And then you repay each according to his 
works, verse 12 of Psalm 62. The same principle is repeated by the wisdom writer in Proverbs 24, 10 and 12. If you do nothing in a difficult time, if you say, but we didn't know, won't he who weighs hearts consider it? Won't he who, the heart, won't he who protects your life know? Won't he repay a person according to his work? It occurs in the prophecies of Hosea and Jeremiah. Hosea chapter 12, Jeremiah 17 and 32. It is elaborated upon in the vivid expression in Ezekiel where he says, I will bring down on their own heads what they have done, speaking for God. In chapter 9, verse 10 and eleven twenty-one, Jesus himself repeats this idea in Matthew 16. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each according to what he has done. Paul says it elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. It's a recurring theme in the book of Revelation where the churches, the churches are being warned. For example, in Thyatira, unless they repent of her works, I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts and I will then give to each of you according to your works. And at the very end of the age, Revelation 20 verse 12, I also saw the dead and the great and small standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. And at the very end in Revelation 22, 12, Jesus Look, I am coming soon, and my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. It's all through the Bible. The testimony of God's word is of the reality and principle of exact retribution, which is the foundation of justice, and we know this in our bones. We know this in our bones. It's that longing for rightness, right? We have that longing. It's that longing for, I mean, right from the beginning when we're little kids, what do we do? That's not fair. What is that? It's a proclamation of a longing for justice. There isn't a person in this world who doesn't want this good news to be true, if you think about it. This is good news. The wrath of God is good news because everything that was evil and wrong will be dealt with. It's the good news. The world is crying out. Is not the world crying out for justice? They just don't know what it really is because they don't know what's right and what's wrong. And what Paul is saying is that God will render justice at the last day. His righteous judgment will be revealed. As one commentator notes, such a public occasion on which a public verdict will be given and a public sentence passed requires public and verifiable evidence to support them. And the only public evidence available will be our works, what we have done and what we have been seen to do. The presence or absence, listen to this, of saving faith in our hearts will be disclosed by the presence or absence of good works of love in our lives. 
So we say with the reformers, we are saved by faith alone, but saving faith never remains alone, but must issue in good works. For if it does not, it is bogus, even dead. James 2, 26. Again, so you're hearing me clearly. Justification by faith and final judgment according to works. And it is that kind of a robust theology that if we would take on and take in, I believe, could eradicate hypocrisy from our ranks. We will not be, if we believe this, if we take this in, we won't be self-righteous finger pointers. Ever run into a self-righteous finger pointer? Like actually, like they right into your chest, their sternum? but instead would be a family of men and women who come together humbly under the gracious forbearance and patience of God towards us in such a way that we are led to repentance and then we move in that restored position before God in forgiveness and restraint and kindness towards others. <gasps> and, in this, and in this way, family, we will be a beautiful testimony of the good news of God to a watching world. Do you see how important this is for our evangelism? Because the world is tired of hypocrites in the church. I think they're probably more tired than we are of hypocrites in the church. They are tired of those who preach one thing on Sunday and they do something different between Monday and Saturday. They are tired of those who preach against legalism but burden others with their own list of rules on how to gain God's favor. They're tired of that. They are tired of those who like to jump on the social justice bandwagon, but then turn around and pay a pittance of a wage to the immigrants who work in their yards and homes because they know that those people are not legal residents. They are tired of those who claim to be pro-family, but invest no time or energy in their spouse or children, resulting in divorces and kids who walk away from the faith. They are tired of those who say that people should not commit adultery, but then are found to have internet porn on their laptops or a bill for X-rated movies on their hotel invoice. They are tired of hearing people demanding and bragging about giving until it hurts, but see on the annual surveys by Lifeway Research, a Christian firm, that the average tithe in the American church is around 1.7% of income. They are tired of hearing Christians boast in their denominations, but seeing no accountability for the same denominations who fail to report sex abuse in leadership or sees that same leadership in those denominations suck up to politicians who everybody knows have a sham faith. They are tired of hearing Jesus is the reason for the season or don't take Christ out of Christmas only to hear those same Christians complain about going to a Christmas Eve service or going to church when it happens to fall on a Sunday on Christmas. As Brennan Manning famously said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door of a church, and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Can we not make that mistake? Let us not, family, despise 
the riches of God's kindness, restraint, and patience. But let us instead see it as the space provided. Thank you, God. So that we can repent of all of our hypocrisies. Today. Today. Right now. This morning. Before we before we take this table. Worship team, would you come up? You know, this is this is the reason that he gave us this table. Because as we read about earlier from Luke's Christmas story, Jesus' father so loved this world, this rebellious world, that he sent his one and only son into this world as a baby, right? We sing about this on Christmas time. Can, can you sing it with me? Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul knelt its worth. A thrill of hope the weary soul rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angel voices. Oh, night divine. Oh, night when Christ was born. Fall on your knees, indeed, and repent of your sin and remember what Christmas is really all about. It's about God solving our problem and giving us the greatest gift that could ever be given in his son. Jesus came, he lived, and then he died. (sighs) He who knew no sin became sin for me, for us, that we might know the righteousness of God. God no longer exhibited kindness or forbearance or restraint on Jesus, but he let loose the full fury of his wrath for every sin that had been stored up that ever has been, is being sinned at this moment right now or ever will be, he let loose on Jesus. Do you know why he did that? So that he could give you restraint and kindness and patience. Wow, what a savior. 
man, you guys, I love Jesus. (laughs) And this is what we remember right here. And not just for us, right? He did this. What does Paul say? Forgive one another even as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. Extend kindness. When she does it again, when he does it again, extend patience and forbearance and grace because he did that for you in Jesus. You don't have to be a member to celebrate this table. All you have to do is believe that Jesus died for your sins and come with empty hands of faith to receive that gift. (laughs) It's a truly free to you gift. I'm going to have you come up by sections. So this section, go that way, come up to this table, grab juice, and an elder will be serving you bread. That section, go that way, come up, and elders, whatever elders are serving, can you come up right now? Do, do elders know that they're serving? I don't, hey, Paul, would you come up right here? Hey, Dan, would you go right there? Is there another, I, is there another elder in the house? <laughs> there, okay, we got two more over here. Seth is going to go over. Great. We're really organized here at Grace. <laughs> Just come up in this section, go that way, come up this table, that section, go that way, come up, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Hold the elements, we'll celebrate all together when you get back to your seat.